peace to you, and welcome to a sermon podcast from Richfield United Methodist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Sign up for weekly digital content at richfieldumc.org. Subscribe, share, and get out there with Jesus to heal a broken world. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have a good experience. This podcast is the sermon on November 3rd, 2019. Invest in the Legacy is part two of the five-part worship series, Invest in the Story. The preacher is Reverend Nate Melcher, and the scripture is Acts of the Apostles, chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Today's scripture comes from Acts of the Apostles 9, as we continue our journey through Acts to learn from the early church for the church we are now and the church that God calls us to be in the future. This is probably a familiar story for many of you, this moment of conversion on the road to Damascus. So many of us have heard it before, but be careful. Uh, Sometimes when the story is well known, so to speak, we actually find that we only know it in the broad strokes, and we can miss what's really there. So I encourage you to listen closely to Saul's experience in this classic story. Hear now from Acts 9. Meanwhile, Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground and through his eyes, though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. He answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales from his eyes and his sight was restored. And then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. When my buddies and I were teenagers, uh, we would joke about how we thought we might be remembered. Would any of us have like a big moment in our life that would be so memorable that that's all that people would know us by? 
And uh, because we were teenage buddies, we often were sure that it was going to be our biggest mistakes were going to be the things people would remember us by. Why did we do that? Because that's what best friends do. Not let your mistakes go, apparently. Uh, one of our friends in high school was a risk taker. Now, when I say risk taker, I mean needless risk taker. This was the kind of guy where if we were walking through a state park, he was up on a tree somehow and then going, huh, how am I going to get down from here? He's the kind of guy who said, if there's a hole in the floor of your car, that's not dangerous, that's cool. He's the kind of guy who, uh, we were convinced that if we were going to have to carve something on his grave marker, we'd have to put what we were sure would be his last words on earth, hey guys, watch this. Now that young man is a little older now, and he's transformed, he's mellowed out, and yet riskiness is still part of his legacy. On All Saints Day, we pause to ponder the legacy of our loved ones, those who entered eternal life with God this year, and all those who entered eternal life over our own lifetime, these people whom we loved. What did they teach you? What did they share with you? What parts of who you are did you inherit from them? And what of them have you passed on to the next generation? Hopefully the list makes you really proud. Maybe there's a few things that are a little more tricky. When I meet with couples to get ready for their marriage, we call it premarital education, and we meet for a few times in my office, and they take an inventory, we do exercises, things like that. But uh, I tell couples, I'm your only wedding vendor who's not concerned about the first day of your wedding. I'm concerned about all the days of your marriage. And so that's what we're going to work on together. And one of the exercises we do is called a genogram. A genogram, like genealogy, basically we make a big family tree so that we can uh, talk about their origins, where they come from, and see how do their origins influence how they operate in this world. Because like it or not, where we came from matters to who we are. And I'll never forget one couple. One of the rules of this exercise is that when we do uh, one person, the other person must be quiet. They cannot interject little pieces of history they missed or, believe it or not, opinions. But uh, one couple were having a really tough time with their wedding planning. He just could not keep money in his pocket. He just, but as soon as he had money, he would just spend it on something fun, something flashy. She was such a spendthrift that if she didn't have to spend a dime to save her life, she wouldn't do it. That's a very interesting combo when it comes to trying to plan your wedding. So we're going over his family tree, and we come to the part about his dad, and I say, tell me about your dad. And he says, oh, he's great. I love my dad. You know, we had a lot of fun. You know, we didn't have a lot of money, and you guys kind of think of it. As soon as he had money in his pocket, he kind of spent it all on us, and we did fun stuff, flashy stuff. You know, it was pretty good. And I could just see his fiance reeling in the couch as she heard this. And finally, when we were done with uh, his part of it, I, I turned to her and I said, okay, are you ready? And she just burst out, you're your dad. You are your dad. He, he can't keep money in his pocket. You can't. And I'm my mom. She wouldn't let us spend anything. And this moment helped them just relax a little bit when it came to planning their wedding because they got to see where they come from is influencing how they were going about this. They weren't trying to do a personal attack with blowing all the money or not letting anything be spent. That's just how they were taught and how they were raised. 
but now they have insight into what that means for them as a couple. The ultimate goal of the genogram and premarital sessions is to help each other see the origins of the other and see the world as they see it. Friends, like Jesus saw Saul on that road to Damascus, Jesus sees you all of your days as a beloved child of God. Do you see yourself that way? Is it sometimes hard to see? Maybe you're sometimes unsure if you're worthy. Maybe you're having a down day where you're like, I'm just not worthy of this. Or maybe you do feel worthy, but, but not always. Maybe something tips the scales in your mind that makes it out of balance with worthiness. Maybe that's why so many of the people I know uh, who talk about this story from Acts actually have a tough time with this story. Now, this is probably in the top three stories that I hear about when people talk about Acts. Pentecost is always number one. We, we know Pentecost and the tongues of fire and the Holy Spirit. And then people bring up Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, which we looked at last week during Confirmation Sunday. Uh, but the third one would be this tale of Saul on the road to Damascus. And when it's brought up in casual conversation, it's seldom about the nuance of the story. It's, it's not about the tremendous faith of Ananias to trust God to bring healing to the one who is persecuting his friends and family. It's not about the powerful teamwork of Saul's friends who aren't sure what's going on, but they bring him to town and care for him anyway. It's not even about the weird part where something like scales fall from Saul's eyes. When people bring this story up to me, it's almost always with this twinge of guilt or, or sometimes a dose of shame where people say, well, I've never had an experience like that one. I've never had my road to Damascus moment. I've never heard the voice of Jesus speak to me like that. I, I've never been dramatically stricken blind and been healed and had my life transformed. And sometimes people say, what's wrong with me? I want those kind of moments. What's wrong with my faith? I thought we're supposed to have like this one big powerful moment, this most memorable thing, which will be my legacy like he did. And it's unfortunate because there's nothing here in this story that suggests that one has to have this one meaningful, instantaneous conversion moment in order to have faith. Saul, and I'm purposely saying Saul here, not Paul, but Saul is having a conflux moment. He is feeling the presence of Jesus. Now, conflux is this older word for confluence. It's often used, like, for example, when two bodies of water meet, these two streams merge, and then they form this new body of uh, water. So they have confluence, or they conflux. Two things coming together to make something new. And that's what Saul is having on that road, is his path conflux with Jesus. And conflux moments in life, they're powerful, they're undeniable, synergistic intersections between you and the heart of God. A living encounter with Jesus, where Jesus says, hey, watch this, and life changes. It might be a new cognitive learning. It could be intellectual learning that changes your life, or maybe a new conviction of the heart right to the seat of your emotion. A spiritual nudge. Maybe it's just a nudge. A moment when you experience awareness of God's tangible presence, when you experience uh, a spirit-prompted emotion like tears, or happiness, or hope, or penitence, or joy, and so on. 
God puts these moments before us all the time in hopes and prays that we will be open to them. Maybe you'll have a complex moment in worship. Maybe a particular song or sermon or prayer. Maybe the signs of peace as you shake the hands of a stranger you've never encountered before, but there's something special in that moment. Could it be in the midst of gathering with your loved ones as you are gathering for a loved one's funeral or memorial and you're sharing those stories and you're realizing the story that you had of your loved one is just a piece of it because there's so many more layers to this person in the legacy of your blessed saint. Could it be in a premarital session as you realize how you think about money says a lot about where you came from? We can have powerful conflicts moments, yet rarely do they stand on their own. And that's something that we often think about with Paul's conversion story. It's very amazing, and he has this powerful moment, and he says he's converted, and he's baptized, and yet there's so much more. These moments need fuel. You can kick a soccer ball pretty hard down the pitch, but it's going to need a couple more kicks to get to the goal. So this is where we have to use our close reading for Saul's journey. Note here, he's still Saul. We often think this is Paul's conversion story, but here he's still Saul. And this is chapter 9. It's a key moment in his life, no question, but this is chapter 9 of Acts. He doesn't go by Paul until chapter 13. And in the next few weeks, we're going to see more about these powerful moments he has encountering the Spirit with new peers and more meaningful moments that encounter the Spirit in these new complex moments, and he doesn't just open his eyes to Jesus once. He opens them to Jesus again and again and again to see more clearly every single time, because that's how life keeps going. So if you've ever known someone who's disappointed that they don't have this road to Damascus experience with this bright light and this big voice and all of that, remind them this is only one step in, Paul, in Saul's journey. And the Spirit was at work in him long before this, just like the Spirit is at work in all of us now. Transformation takes time. Over the next few weeks, we're going to read how Saul journeys from his legacy of persecuting the Jewish Christians and dragging them from their homes to a new legacy, transformed into a servant of God. He sees the legacy that he's had, and he says, I want a new legacy. I want to build something new with Jesus. As a church, we, have, we want to have a legacy of opportunities for complex moments. If we aren't helping people have new living encounters with Jesus, then we're not a church, we're a nonprofit. If we aren't raising up disciples with intentional faith development, then we're not a church, we're a social club. And if we aren't attempting to name the moments when God breaks through in our lives to build a new legacy, we aren't a church for fair-weather fans. Perhaps a simple way to see God is to find ways for us to see and listen to one another. I don't know about you, but sometimes it feels like this is a time in which families are divided, the nation is divided, the world is more than divided, just fractured. Are we listening to each other anymore? What would it mean to, to take time to listen to one another? At the meet and greets and in personal conversations all over the place, I encounter men who are older than me, maybe my dad's age and up, thereabouts, and uh, 
after some talking, they get a little vulnerable and they say, I'm so glad that men your age and even younger than you are starting to talk about your feelings better than we ever did. I don't know if you've ever heard that or thought that, but I've been hearing that a lot from uh, generations a little older than me. And certainly the younger men haven't figured it all out yet, but we're working on it. And I think we are all working on how to share about our feelings and talk about what really matters. And I wonder, what would it mean to have a small group before you need it? Has anyone ever been in a small group, a kind of group where you can share your soul, you can share what's going on, the highs and lows of life by a show of hands? Anybody been in a small group? That's like over half of this room. That's amazing. A small group is great, and I especially love small groups when you can get into one before you need one, because it's really tough mentally, emotionally, to show up on a small group on your first day after something really major has happened. Because it's tough to show up and say, hey, here's all my baggage. Hi, how you doing? Can I meet you? That's tough. However, if you're in a small group before you need it, when things are at an even keel, when things are even going great, what happens is that you have got this group of people who you can trust and who love you so that when stuff does happen, you've got that rapport all set so that you can come in and say, you know me, but guess what? It's time for baggage claim. And they'll love you and support you. Now, they'll love you and support you whether it's day one with baggage or day 500 and here comes the baggage. But I wonder what would happen if we got into groups to talk about the deepest things we know. And I also wonder about intergenerational connections to build our legacy between the generations, to build things like mentorship programs. So someone who's 25 and someone who's 55 and maybe even 75 can come and get some coffee and talk shop, talk work, talk life, talk next steps. What kind of mutual learning does a 25-year-old and a 55-year-old have for one another? Probably more than some of us could imagine. And then I think about this Faith Five. If you have your bookmark, I encourage you to take it out. This is a really cool curriculum. This is from Faith Incubators. That's I-N-K Incubators. It's from, I think, up in Stillwater. It's from Dr. Rich Malheim. And this is the backbone of our prayer partners ministry this year. And as you can see on the bookmark, it's five easy steps. You can do this with a loved one or a friend over the phone or your family. And it takes about five minutes, give or take. First, you share your highs and lows, and the order is important because neuroscience tells us if we start with our highs, it helps us right frame our lows, or at least not start low and then have to dig our way out of a pit to get to something high. So you share your highs and lows, and if you don't really have a personal high and low, that's okay. You turn to the headlines because there's a lot out there to talk about, and it might instill some empathy and compassion in you. Then you read a Bible verse or a story. Maybe you've got a cavalcade of favorite stories, Maybe you want to look at the scripture that's coming up for Sunday. Maybe you can hit the same scripture every day of the week to see if something new happens. But you read a story, and then you should talk about it. What does the story have to say about our highs and lows? What does the story have to say about me and God? And then you pray, and you pray for one another's highs and lows to show that you care about each other and that you've heard one another. And then finally, you bless one another. And you look them in the eye and you say, God bless Ryan. And they say it right back to you. I first learned about this on July 30th, 2015. I was at a conference called Rethinking Confirmation. 
and this guy was giving his pitch on all of his curriculum, and I was hooked. So I brought it home, and I said to my spouse, Kelly, can we try this? She said, sure. And so we've been doing it every night since July 30th, 2015 as a family. Now, when I say every night with little kids, most every night, I could probably count on two, maybe three or four hands where uh, uh, certain attitudes precluded being able to get through the faith five. Uh, but that said, what's that? You, oh, you forgive me and my attitude? Yeah, it's me. <laughs> Heckled by my wife. I love it. Uh, but anyway, where was I? Uh, faith five. <laughs> but it's been tremendous. And, and my kids have gotten to know Bible stories, uh, and I've gotten to know Bible stories, and to hear their questions, it's been so good. And, and there's something about sharing your highs and lows that Dr. Melheim says is so important. He says, you get your kids talking about their highs and lows now when they're toddlers, by the time they're teenagers, that time of huge transformation, when they don't want to talk to you, they might remember that you listen to them and their highs and lows every single day for years. Because if there's ever a time to not stop talking to your parents, it's when you're a teenager. And if there's ever a time for us as parents or as adults and godparents or grandparents to stop talking to our kids because we don't get them, it's not when they're a teenager. We want everyone to take this Faith 5 bookmark today and uh, start using it. See what happens in your life when you add prayer and blessing to your life every day. On All Saints Day, we remember the legacy of our loved ones. And in a season of stewardship, we remember the legacy of our church, and it was built upon a legacy that uh, has now become the church we've inherited. And in a time of divide, we see complex moments we are open ourselves to what God is doing. We ask God to break through and do a new thing. Keep us open to the many Damascus moments throughout our lives and curate opportunities for living encounters with Jesus so that the scales fall away from our eyes and we see Jesus as love and we see our neighbor and ourselves as beloved. And to all those in grief, may you have many conflux moments in your life where you have the opportunity to say, hey guys, watch this and show off the legacy of your dear departed ones through your own life to show how those whom you loved have rubbed off on you. To those whom uh, our great God does not take, but our great God does receive with more mysterious love than we could ever fully see through our human eyes. May it be so, and amen. This has been a sermon podcast from Ridgefield United Methodist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, copyright 2019. Now, go into God's world, knowing that you are a beloved child of God, and bear witness to the love of God, so that those to whom love is a stranger will find in you a generous friend. Thanks for listening.